This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Elizabeth Barrett and Elizabeth's been in Ballinger not, not too long, a few ten, years. Ten, ten years now. Ten, ten years now, right, that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I feel very fortunate to have Elizabeth as part of our Sangha. And um, today she's going to be speaking to us on her, uh, her journey with the Gurdjieff teachings. Um, for those of you who don't know Gurdjieff, and I don't know him very well, um, he was quite an influential teacher during the 20th century and uh, had a big influence in the West. And, uh, you know, Zen teachers like Joko Beck and Ezra Baida were influenced by Gurdjieff as well. Some of his writings can be a little bit difficult to read, um, and sometimes the secondary sources are easier. But um, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce Elizabeth to you because uh, mm -hmm. she's had the practical experience, the lived experience of the Gurdjieff teachings, which is quite rare, actually. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to um, her story. So thanks, thank Elizabeth. You. I thought I'd start by saying how I came across the teachings in the first place. Um, when I was growing up, I had an uncle that I was very fond of. Um, he'd been through the First World War, had been badly injured and almost died. And through those experiences, it made him the kind of beautiful man he was. Um, he was he's humble, but at the same time he was compassionate and kind, and as children we felt we could trust him absolutely. So as a, as a child I thought he was very special and we all loved him a great deal. Then when I got to my early teens and as I grew up I decided I wanted to understand whatever it was that he understood. He seemed to be so wise and compassionate. So. Well, I thought, no, for, I'm just going to have to nearly die in some way in order to see whatever it was that he saw. But, of course, I wasn't going to throw myself under a bus or anything. And then, by the time I got, I was about 17, and my brother was doing his national service, and he rode home and asked my mother for a book. And my, my, my brother is much more intelligent than I am, and anything he was interested in was, was worth looking into. So I asked her if she'd perhaps delay sending the book on and made so that I could read it. So I read a few chapters and it was just like a revelation. I knew I didn't have to nearly die. I could work with the Gurdjieff work and I'd be able to understand whatever it was my uncle understood. Um, I looked for a group, but they were, the only one was in London. It was a big group and that was 120 miles away and about an hour and a half by train. So that was not really feasible to go up there for a, a week, um, an hour's meeting every week and then the weekend, so nothing really eventuated. Then I went nursing and I got married and had children and all, the, all that sort of stuff happened. Mm -hmm. Then my husband was offered a job in Sydney. So we thought that was exciting, we'll do that. The children aren't at school yet, so it wouldn't disturb them too much. So we came to Australia. There were groups in Australia, but I didn't know of them at the time. We ended up in Adelaide. 
and I saw an advertisement in the Adelaide paper for the Gurdjieff Group. So I got really excited um, and applied and went along. My husband didn't want me to go in somewhere that he didn't know amongst these strange people that there might be a cult of some kind and he wasn't quite sure. So he came along and, and he was taken by it, thought it was be really good. But it turns out the man who had advertised was a bit of a charlatan. Um, he'd been to a group somewhere, obviously worked with creative people because he understood quite a few things and he knew how to put it over. But after a while, we felt he was with all of us read a bit about the Gershaw work by then. And we felt he was twisting things a bit and it just didn't feel right. And then when he asked us for 10% of our salary, we thought it was definitely not right. <laughs> not going to do that. So about six of us separated ourselves from him and formed our own little group. But we were, well, we can laugh about it now, but we didn't know what we were doing. We were floundering. We, need, we needed a teacher of some kind, and we were just just lost. You can't do it just from the books. You actually need to be with people and working with people and knowing what you're doing, or have someone to show you what to do and how to do it. So um, one of us got in contact with a Nikki Tereshenko who worked with the, Paris, with the main group in Paris. And he had a daughter in Adelaide, and he'd come over regularly to finish it, visit his daughter. So he came and helped us and got us actually working and sort of began to show us the way. Um, Gurdjieff called his teaching the fourth way. I don't know if you know about that or how it eventuated. The first way, or one of the ways, is the way of the fakir, who lies on a bit of nails or stands on one leg for 12 hours a day trying to find consciousness by subjugating his body. And there's the way of the monk who tries to do the same thing with their emotions. Or there's the yogi who tries to understand consciousness merely by his by the action of his mind, by his clever thinking. Gurdjieff included all three ways, sort of con con in conjunction. Um, probably the main thing he sort of talks about, he says we're all asleep. We merely react to everyday circumstances and things that happen to us according to our type. And we, and, we, and we just automatically do that. There's nothing, it's just this, we're just this automatic machine, if you like. And the only way to begin to wake up and to understand how your machine works is to really study it. Like a mechanic would have to study a car, the workings of a car in order to be able to fix a car. So it's all about self-observing, observing yourself and trying to understand how this particular machine works in all different circumstances. So. There'd be meetings once a week, and once a month there'd be um, a work day where everyone would get together and do physical work of some kind. There'd be some people would be in the kitchen preparing morning tea or lunch. Um, other people would be in the garden doing gardening, or we'd have a craft group, and a few people would be working on the craft group. The whole point was to work with people you might not normally work with, to sort of ruffle your feathers a bit so that you can actually get to see yourself. So we acted as a, as a mirror for each other as we were working. And you've got quite some big shocks. You've sort of aspects of yourself that you probably won't, you wouldn't see out of normal life. So it was very, very beneficial. Um, I was lucky in that um, I would go, going home to England regularly, I'd go to the big London group that was there and was able to work with them, and that was a, a real experience. The people. The people who have actually worked with Gurdjieff himself have a, a, a real presence about them. It's hard to explain. It's, it's quite something and it's quite different. Mm. 
and there's one man who came to visit the group in Sydney and when he was coming over other was invited to meet him so I went over the rest of the group couldn't go but I my husband and I drove over through the night to meet him in the morning because he was only going to be in Sydney I think about 48 hours and it was just it's hard to explain because we'd make, made the effort to drive all through the night to see him, he put himself at our disposal for a few hours. And to actually, I would say something, for instance, and he'd immediately say something back that mirrored myself to me so I could see exactly where what I said had come from, mm. from what part of me had emerged. Um, I, I don't mean he criticised, I don't mean that, he said it, whatever he said, I can't, I can't give you an example, it's too long ago now. But he would say something that just reflected you back to yourself so you could see what it was, the way you'd reacted and where that, where that particular comment came from in you. And the same happened when I went to the London, was working with the London group. They, they, they were divided up into several groups actually, there were so many of them. And whenever I went I was put in with the, with the, with the craft group. Where they, because, that, because they knew I did some spinning because I had some sheep. I was put in with them because they were dealing with wool, they had hand-dyed wool um, with natural dyes. To, to, to do it is so much more meaningful than just to talk about it, I'm afraid. I, I can't really give you a taste of what it was like. So there were about six or eight of us in the craft group and they were doing a tapestry. The tapestry had, I forget what it was now, but it had some, um, some meaning and, and it was hand-woven like the old-fashioned old tapestries used to be, like the one, like the Bayer tapestry and the others. It was just amazing to work with them. And what was, what was really nice for me was we got talking about spinning and I said I had sheep and I was wearing a cardigan that I'd spun and finished myself. And they said, can you let us have any of that wool? So I said, yes. So I went back and spun up some wool and sent it off to them and they were, so some of my wool was included in some of their tapestries, which was a nice talk. He says, apart in getting to know yourself, he says we have three main centers or brains. There's the instinctive moving center, there's the emotional center, and the intellectual center. And they're quite separate, but they do work together. And everybody has one, or most people have one center that's more predominant than the others. So once you begin to observe yourself, you begin to see how you react to things, and you begin to work out which of your centers is the most predominant. The centers are instinctive moving, the emotional and the intellectual. The instinctive part of the moving center is the part that governs our heart and lungs and circulation and those sort of automatic things that happen. And the moving center is obviously to do with movement. And the emotional center is obviously to do with emotions and the intellectual center and so on. They, they work quite separately and the intellectual center is actually the slowest of them all. So we, we don't like to think about that, we like to think our brains are quite quick and clever but they're actually the slowest. The quickest is the instinctive moving center, because if you put your hand on a hot plate before, you don't even have to think, and you've taken your hand off it. And the moving center is a little bit slower. And if you think about learning to drive a car, when we all learn, I assume we all learn to drive a car. When we learn to drive a car, you have to learn different movements. You know, if you're driving a manual, you have to take your foot off the clutch slowly while you put the accelerator down, you have to look for in the mirror, you have to check for traffic, you have to put your indicators on. You have to do a lot of thinking when you first learn to drive. You can't just jump in and drive. 
But then once you can drive, you have to forget about that. All that moving centre, moving centre has learned how to use the pedal, pedals, how to look in the mirror, how to do all the automatic things. And as I'm sure you know, sometimes you can drive from Coffs Harbour to Bellingham or Coffs Harbour to Sorthill and not even be aware of anything. Your, your movements have automatically driven you down, they've taken note of everything. The emotional centre works a little bit more slowly than that, and, and the intellectual centre more slowly than that. Um, and each centre has its own memory. And I can give an example of that. Um, I had horses, and I bred my mare and had a foal from her. And I educated the foal, and in, in, ta in taming him, I got him to take the saddle and the bridle and all the usual sorts of stuff. But when I started to ride him, he was still very green, and didn't really know a great deal. And not, it would take not much at all to send him very flighty. So on this particular occasion, as I was getting on, he took off. I don't know what scared him, he suddenly took off. So after that, whenever I went to ride, as I put my foot in the stirrup, my body would remember what happened, and that would affect my emotions and my mind. So, um, so each part of us has a different memory of different things. He also suggests that there's not one I, I call myself Elizabeth, mm. but I'm not one I, there's lots of eyes in me, and those eyes are grouped up into roles. For instance, there's the mother in me, there's also the grandmother in me, and they behave slightly differently. There's this person sitting here who's a different eye, who behaves quite differently again. So we all have these different people living in us. And the thing is, after a while, to observe yourself and to see which eye is operating when and how and what it's like. Because you can have one eye that will t be, be talking to a friend, and the friend will say, look, could you help me with this? And you say, oh, yes, I'll help you tomorrow. And you really think you will help them tomorrow. But by tomorrow you may have forgotten and you're in a different eye. So that eye doesn't do anything about the promise the first eye made. So, so we, we have all these different parts living in us, grouped into roles. Um, talked about that. Oh, the other thing is, one or one or the other, there's so much to talk about, it's hard to, to know where to go, actually, because his whole teaching covers everything from from a grain of sand to the formation of the universe. It's, he goes into detail and it's all, it's just beautiful and fascinating, but it actually blows your mind when you actually begin to really understand what he's talking about. And I think blow your mind is a lovely expression. You feel as if your mind is sort of almost exploded. It's just beautiful. He says, you go, well, as we know, you go where your attention goes. So whatever you're looking at tends to be where your attention goes. So if, for instance, you're looking at a tree, um, your attention goes to the tree and there's nobody left at home. There's just nobody there. But if you can look at a tree or at anything and keep part of yourself inside yourself and only give part of your attention away, then you're much more sort of on much more stable ground. And if someone were to tap you on the shoulder, you wouldn't jump out of your skin like you might if you were just looking at a tree. And talking about a tree, it's one way of um, having a look at how your different centers work. A person who is predominantly moving center would look at a tree and think something like, that would, pre pre that would provide really beautiful shade on a hot day. They're thinking of their own comfort. An emotional per per person would likely to say when they first see a tree, oh, I like that, or I don't like it. And an intellectual person is more likely to say, I wonder what sort of tree that is. They would be the first, the most 
the quickest things that come to mind, then the others might follow. So it's a way of testing out whether you're a more, uh, an instinctive moving or an emotional or an intellectual person. So it's all part of self-observation. Um, also it's good to do with our sense of attention. In order to hold your attention on yourself while you're observing something, we started off by having, we talk about the sensation of the body. If you can, for instance, while you're sitting here, have a sensation of your feet and really sense them, just be aware that you have feet, you'll find you become grounded, ground, makes you feel much more grounded. And if you can hold on to the sensation of your feet while you're doing anything else, mm -hmm. you tend to be, you're then more likely to not become totally involved in whatever it is you're doing. So some of the exercises are around that sort of thing. For instance, while you're doing the washing up, there's one exercise we have during the week, just for one week between meetings. Um, see if you can hold your attention on your feet while you're doing the washing up, or while your hands are in water. Bring this attention back to yourself whenever your hands are in water. And that becomes a reminding factor, so that if, if you're actually doing that, you've got your hands and you're doing the washing up, and you have a wonderful sensation of presence while you're doing it, with all the centers connected. Next time you come to do it, the chances are the mere fact of doing it will remind you, the centers will remember and will help you to be there again. There are other times, like going up and down steps, um, to, to try and remember part of yourself to have a body sensation. So if it's all about not getting lost, like I'm getting lost, but to be in your body, and to, and to stay there and hold on to that instead of getting totally lost. Two things he talks about. I mean, there's, there's just so much to talk about. Um, one thing that's happening to me right now is what he calls inner considering. It's, I wonder what people are thinking of me and am I putting it over rightly and it's all thoughts about me and how I'm doing. External, we all tend to do that quite a lot. External considering is thinking of the other people. Are they able to understand what I'm saying? Am I putting it in such a way that they can understand it and thinking of them? And it's a balance between these two a lot of the time. And right now, the inner considering keeps getting the better of me, and I keep getting a bit lost. Um, he talks about the laws of the universe. I said his teaching covers from a grain of sand to the universe. He says, we're all governed by two, everything is governed by two laws the law of three and the law of seven. This is part of the intellectual aspect of the work. But you begin to actually watch it and understand it and see it. The law of three, you have um, a, um, I can say negative, not a negative force. Um, I can't think of the right word. Um, well, we call it negative for the moment because I can't think of the word I want. And a positive force and, an inter and a, a neutralizing force of the two. And every Every action, every phenomenon, every manifestation is under those three laws. And the way to explain it is to say, um, for instance, my car is in the garage and I'd quite like to go shopping. Um, the car in the garage is the passive force. I'm the active force. Um, and I quite like to go shopping, but I really are quite comfortable where I am. So they're the two forces. If I bring in a third force, I really need to get some milk or I won't be able to have enough for a cup of tea, then I'll actually get up and do something. So it takes three forces for every single action. 
it's a very simple, very simplistic way of explaining it. And that it explains the laws of the universe and everything, but it's, that's such a difficult thing to go into. The law of seven is based on um, the octave. I don't know if, how musical anyone is, but if you know the major scale of the octave, the law of seven is based on that. On an evolutionary scale, is there's do, re, mi, and then you get an interval. And Gurdjieff, of course, says that at that point, there's a weak point. And without something to push you on to continue, you'll be a slightly off course. And I'm sure we all know when we've tried to learn something, you start off with lots of enthusiasm. And you really get, you're really doing well for a while. And then you come to a point where you, you sort of slow down and you reach a sort of plateau and you think, um, oh dear, I, I don't know if I can continue with this. And if I can, I just seem to be stuck. And often it needs something like you find a teacher or you talk to someone else who inspires you for whatever it is, and then something will happen from the outside that will actually give you the oomph to continue the learning. And then between the top, T and Do, there's another interval, and that's also where the energy, the forward energy tends to lessen a bit. But that energy is taken up by the wish, we've nearly finished, we've only got a little bit more to do, we can do that. So that affects just about everything. It's difficult to go into into detail because it's it's just so involved. Oh dear, am I running out of things to say? Couldn't possibly be. There's just, I don't know where, where else to go. Has anyone got any questions? What, what year are you talking about? He, he died in 1949. Thank you. Do you go to a group in Belgium? There isn't a group in Belgium, which is how come I'm involved in Buddhism. When I first moved up to this part of the world, I, I there wasn't a group Belgian group up here, so I joined the Theravadan Buddhist group in, in Coffs. I was going to their meetings for a while, and then I then I couldn't cope with the property. The energy was just just not there for me. So I moved into Belgium to be near my daughter, and I met Andrew, and he introduced me to Zen. So here I am. Feel free to ask questions or make comments. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I haven't been going very well, long. One comment I? I had was, it just struck me with Elizabeth when you were speaking of the, the sort of sensory motor center and the emotional center and the, the cognitive center, intellectual center, that, uh, that pre predated the notions of the triune brain or the tripartite brain, which came much later. You know, we talk these days about the three brains, you know, the basic, you know, the brain stem and the one that can, yeah, Controls everything you're talking about, and then the amygdala and the emotional center and the, uh, the frontal cortex. So that's very yeah. interesting. Well, of course, we know about God the Father, God the Son, God, God the. Yes, so there, there are, there's the triumvirate in lots of places. And lots of the teachings that he teaches are in all the teachings. That's like you need to die before you can be born. In other words, you need to die to this false part, this part of us that just reacts. To find a place, find a way of being separate from that. And they talk about sleep and being awake in the Bible, so some of the aspects are the same in all the teachings. I thought I'd be able to talk for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Elizabeth, um, where did he come from? Did he have a lineage that he followed, or was he just no. a self awakened being? Because he's quite <coughs> unique in his teachings. He, he's, an he's an Armenian. 
um, nobody knows exactly when he was born, but sort of towards the end of the 1800s. And there's a book, there's a film out and a book about meetings with remarkable men. And that's the story of his evolvement, of his evolving, how he ended up in this secret school. I don't know if you've seen it, but there are movements involved. Movements initially in the Gertrude work were very important. Um, I've been to movements classes when I've been to some of the other groups and it's just amazing. Your, your head is doing one thing, say in the time of one, two, three, four, and your arms are doing something like um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and your legs are doing something else completely differently. So the brain just, the brain just has to let go. So you, you put the movements into your moving center so that you, you know, your body knows what it's meant to be doing. And it's usually jump to a beat of some kind, rather a drum, usually a drum. But then you get to a point where your brain just has to let go. It can't, it just can't keep track of all the different movements. And then you come to this really still place, which is unlike any other still place inside yourself. It's um, hard to explain about it. And, but when the, in the group that I had in Adelaide, we didn't have a movements teacher, so we didn't do. We, we tried to muddle them through a few movements, but we didn't really do them seriously. We didn't. You're supposed to have a proper movements teacher if you do the movements. So I have a question. It's um, more like a historical question. Um, so he actually was teaching in, in England. He ended up in that England. Or no, he had, um, he's, the main centre was in Paris. In France. Yeah. He tried in he tried in England and it didn't really seem to work for him. So he ended up in Paris. But there was there was a group in Sydney in, uh -huh. in, in England as well. And do, do you know um, what the Theosophical Society was that together at the same time or earlier or later? I um, don't know. Probably the same time. Yeah. There was a lot of inquiry from people coming from the east, from eastern part of Russia. The other question I have is: Do you know um, some background on music? Um, that he wrote a couple of, I think, cycles, um, and then some arrangements for piano. They're very beautiful. Yes, like they something. are. They, <laughs> are. They, were, they, were, they were played by Thomas de Hartmann, who mm -hmm. was a composer. And I've got, got a record of the music played by Thomas de Hartmann. It's very, very special. Yeah. He would, when he would compose it, it's deliberately designed to bring about a certain emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's quite, quite, quite amazing, quite different. Mm. And other people have tried to copy it, but it doesn't really work. It doesn't have the same effect. Mm -hmm. Because he was conscious, shall we say, while he, while he, he while he composed it, and he had Thomas de Hartmann sitting at the piano while he was composing it. Mm -hmm. And being in a state of presence, he was able to know exactly what he was doing and the effect he was going to have on producing the music. Mm -hmm. I've got it on a record and I don't actually have a turntable at the moment. <laughs> it's actually on iTunes. Um, I think have a listen on iTunes. But it, may, but it may not be the one by Thomas de Hartmann. I think it is. I don't think so. It's by someone called Alain, someone or other. I think the one that was put out on the CD anyway. And there was some flute as well, piano music. It was very beautiful. What's it called? Gurdjieff. Elizabeth, are you aware of Dr. Andrew Heslop? He practices in Bellingham and now lives in St. John. 
Yes. Yeah. He's a great fellow in the Persian family. Yeah, so I go there. It's very much Persian. He does have that moment. Yeah, great Persian. I believe he's very unwell at the moment. Oh, poor Andrew. Yes. What's he got? I'm not quite sure if he's got whether he has cancer or not. I'm not quite sure. I just know he's very quite unwell. to take over. Well, we give it priority. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, we, we tend to let it take over. Yes. And different people um, talking about the centres again. Somebody who has principally instinctive moving centre, who is their principal centre, and that they're the one, the, one, the one that's most active, they'll either be lazy and have trouble getting themselves up to do anything, or else they'll be involved in sport. <laughs> Anything that where they get where they get the sheer pleasure out of body, body moving and the movement you get in sport, and an emotional person tends to be more, I like this or I don't like this, and they'll they'll be ruled more by their feelings, and an intellectual person will will analyse things rather rather than feel them. Mm. But we all use all all our centres all the time, and they all interact. Trouble is they get in the way of each other. Um, for instance, because I've, I'm sitting here and I'm not used to talking to people like this, um, my emotional centre is get, keeps getting in the way, and that works faster than my brain. So it gets in the way of my, the intellectual mm-hmm. centre, so I suddenly can't find the words, or I find the wrong words. Mm-hmm. So the, the speeds of the centres, they, they interfere with each other. And if I'm trying to balance on a, on a very thin plank over a chasm, for instance, all I really need is my moving centre to keep me in balance to cross over that without me falling. But I would probably get really frightened and get fearful. And the, emotion, the energy of the emotional centre and the instinctive centre would completely take over. And I wouldn't be able to balance. And yet if we walked along a plank sitting on the ground, we could do it. We're not like falling off a log. So would your adrenaline heart beat be up in Yes. So I'm not a very good example of this particular moment in time. Mm-hmm. I think you're an excellent <laughs> You've come across very clearly and it sounds like you've been able to simplify very complex. I've tried, yes. yes. But questions are the best thing because then they stimulate me and I can then go down that particular track that's appropriate to that question. So is there a sim- I've studied the GIF years ago with rebirthing opportunity to do that and have all the books and everything but you never get in the head of that. Is there a simple um, text you know that's a little elaborate a bit more than what just presented? Mm. 
There's a little book called um, The Possibility you know, the Possible Evolution of Man. It's by Uspinski, and it's in about seven lectures. And that's probably the secret. It's the psychology of it's the psychology of man's possible evolution. You probably have to get it from eight books or something now to be secondhand by now. But that's a really um, that puts it in quite a neat nutshell. But the book my brother bought that got me into it is In Search of the Miraculous by Uspensky. You, you may have heard of that. And it's very involved and there's so many diagrams and there's such a lot. It's difficult to talk about. I mean, the food diagram comes to mind, how at every stage of our digestion, the law of three and the law of seven are working. We put food in our mouths and we chew it, but without the saliva to, to stimulate digestion, it would, we, we wouldn't digest it very well. And at every stage, the law of three operates. So it sort of is everywhere. Once you begin to become aware of it, it's, it's everywhere. And it's funny because in design, often they say, you know, it's the three, it's that mm -hmm. one, rather having the two, moving on to the third. Yes. Yes. Like sitting here for me, um, if you like, I'm active and you're passive in a way, so the um, the other force is, is hopefully helping me to be clear and just coming down and helping me to speak and find the right words to say. One more comment to Elizabeth, another obvious one about him predating is the, the multiple eyes as well because yeah. um, that's, that's, that's probably the dominant paradigm now for personality, um, multiple cell states or multiple eyes. Yes, I'm reading, I've got a book called Everyday Zen by Yoko, and it's, I mean, it's just very similar in lots of ways to the Gurdjieff work. And it's called The, the Work. And working on yourself is a description of when you're trying to be, be present, trying to be aware, trying to be awake. 